0: I do feel like we've been on a hiatus from this. Uh, We've been away for so long, it feels. And I came back and I was thinking, boy, we really, really need to spend the first couple minutes of our time getting re-established in the letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy, and this final writing from the Apostle Paul. If we go back to the very beginning of this letter, and maybe you're reading through this, I trust you are, and getting... uh, much more out of this through the week as you study. But if we go back to the very beginning, you'll remember that we divided this letter up into several key sections. And I want to go back through those with you just quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time reviewing, but I do want to spend enough time to give you enough information to bring to this evening's passage and to have a sense of understanding of where we are in the middle of this letter. Sometimes, maybe like me, You've read your Bible in snippets, and you've kind of been on a nugget hunt. You've just read for those passages that you know are there, and we're going to be in one of those this evening. This is one of those passages that you're familiar with, and if you're reading through this letter, you go, oh man, this is a good one. I want to make sure that those nuggets, and they do exist, don't get lost in the flow of what we actually find. We are holding a treasure and it's a treasure of God's word. And this particular part of the treasure is the second letter of Paul to Timothy. And the whole thing is important for us to understand any one part of the whole. All right? So that's why we constantly review the big picture. And I appreciate Andy doing that this morning for us in Galatians. Giving us the big picture again so that we get the whole gist of what Paul is talking about in that letter. And we're going to try to do the same thing this evening. Verses 1-7 through seven in chapter 1 outline for us basically the introductory material that Paul uses to get into this letter to Timothy. He tells him about his, his love for him, his affection, his remembering Timothy, and his concern for Timothy and his circumstances. If you've forgotten, Timothy is the leader of the church at Ephesus. Paul appointed him to that task. You'll remember the Ephesian elders who met with Paul in Acts chapter 20 and Paul told them, listen, there are going to be ravenous wolves who creep into the flock and they're going to come even from among you men. What a sad testimony, prophecy that that was from the Apostle Paul and yet it was prophetic because we find in 1st and 2nd Timothy that in fact even leadership was leading God's people away from the truth. And so we find Timothy here as the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul reminds him in verses 1 through 7 of how much he loves him and how concerned he is that Timothy live in the reality of what he is. I was so encouraged several months ago now when my pastor from college, Pastor Wickham, was here to share the word with us on Sunday evening, and he called us to living what we are. That's exactly what Paul does in his introduction. In fact, in verses 6 and 7, He really says this to Timothy. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us, you and me, Timothy, we do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. So respond to that, because it's already yours. That's his introduction. He moves then from that into verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 1 with a call for a shameless stand for the gospel. You remember this? He goes through all of this description of of what it is to be a shameless sufferer for the gospel. And he calls Timothy to live out that life that he has put on display for Timothy, to live out the model uh, that Paul was living in even at the time of this writing. Paul's in prison at Rome. He'll never get out. He's going to die. He's going to be beheaded outside of the city under Nero's persecution, and he calls Timothy in verse 13 to follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Not only that, earlier in this section he tells him, don't desert the gospel, and don't desert me, the gospel's servant in chains. So he calls him to shameless suffering for the gospel of Christ. That brought us then to chapter 2, and in the Chapter 2, we see a central theme of a call for endurance in this ministry of the gospel. So if in chapter 1, Paul was making sure that Timothy was aware of the desperate need for him to stand firm and to suffer shamelessly for the gospel, he now turns the corner in chapter 2 and he specifically outlines what it will take and what it will look like to endure in faithfulness. Not just to be momentarily committed to the gospel not just to allow momentary suffering without shame, but to endure faithfully year after year, day after day, moment after moment for the gospel of Christ. And this is where we've been studying. This is where we'll study this evening. When we get through chapter 2, it will bring us into chapter 3, and again we see a turn of theme, and we see a call for Timothy to give himself to correcting false doctrine. And these are hard words for us in our culture today, because it is extremely unpopular in our culture for anyone to confront anybody about anything, right? It's very unpopular to say, you are wrong. It's more popular to say, I don't share your opinion, or I don't know that I totally agree with what you're saying. But it is difficult to do what Paul calls Timothy to do in chapter 3, and that is stand up be bold and confront the false teachers in the church and tell them that they are in fact false. They're not speaking the truth. And we'll look at that. That's where we find such familiar territory as all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, right? Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. One of those passages that you know, and yet we've got to find it in its context. We conclude then with chapter 4 and a call for the bold proclamation of the word of god if he is to confront error he is to boldly proclaim truth and there are two sides to that coin and either side will create an imbalance if there is all declaration of truth without any confrontation of error it can lead to a lack of discernment if there is only confrontation of error without a proclamation of the truth then we are left knowing what we're not for but we have no concept of what we stand for what we're all about and so chapter four. Paul calls on Timothy not only to stand opposed to the false teachers, but to declare boldly the word of God. And this is where we have our theme verse for this church and for many churches who are like-minded. I charge you in verse 1 in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. That is the crystal clear command that we'll find outlining that call to declare or proclaim the word in chapter 4. That takes us all the way down to um, the middle of the section and then beginning in verse 9 with the second half of chapter 4, Paul wraps up with his conclusion and he's very specific about some details that he wants to be accomplished And for specific people, he mentions to Timothy so that he understands what's going on at the end of this letter. And it's amazing to think that in these short chapters, which weren't chapters when Timothy received them, at the very end of this reading, this was it. This was all that they would ever read. This was the closer. This was the last letter Timothy would get from the Apostle Paul under the superintending inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so those final words, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. You can imagine those meant an awful lot to young Timothy here in Ephesus. Okay, that's the big picture. We start with introduction. We have a call for shamelessness and suffering for the gospel. We have a call for endurance in the service of the gospel. Then a call to confront error in the church. And finally then a call to proclaim the truth in the church, that is the word of God. And then the conclusion to the letter and the details that we'll see in just a few weeks. Okay? That's the bird's eye view. We were up at 30,000 feet, and I hope you saw the big picture of what's going on in this letter. Maybe you're hoping we're closing in prayer now, and we're moving on. But actually, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, The hatch just opened, and we're going to drop out of that plane at 30,000, and we're going down onto the floor of this forest and see what God has for us there. Now, It's not unimportant for us to notice also the near context. If that's the broad context of the entire letter, let's look for just a moment at the near context to set ourselves up for what we're about to study. Early in this chapter, if we go back to chapter 2, you'll remember that we began with word pictures that Paul used to describe what an enduring ministry looked like. You remember that? There were three specific illustrations that Paul gave to Timothy that basically were um, pictures that Paul drew so that Timothy could have a mental image of what it was that Paul was calling him to. Right? And you have the cheat sheet in front of you, so I won't insult your, your intelligence by asking you what they are. It's a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Those were the three word pictures, the three illustrations that Paul used to describe to Timothy what it was to be an enduring servant of the gospel. And this is critical. These are powerful word pictures for us because they paint for us really the seriousness and the intensity with which we must bring our ministry to bear upon those who do not know the gospel and upon those who share in the gospel within the church as we minister, both as shepherds and sheep, those who we equip for the work of ministry. The soldier is not tangled up in civilian pursuits. The athlete runs according to the rules that are outlined for his race. And the farmer works and works and works some more so that he can be rewarded with what is accomplished in his fruits. And those are all pictures for us, different facets, but the same picture of the enduring minister who gives himself in um, discipline and in central focus to what he is called to be. We've seen that in First Timothy and we've seen it reiterated for us here in Second Timothy, the ministry of the gospel. Paul moved then from the word pictures and he took us into verses 8 through 13 where not word pictures were outlined but meditations of the heart. And So we started this chapter by looking at helpful illustrations and then Paul moved to the very thoughts of the enduring ministry. What is it that drives the thinking, the heartbeat, the meditation, the belief system? What is the core of the minister who will endure, who will remain faithful? Be shameless for the gospel. Verses 8 through 13 give us that outline, if you will, of the meditations of the enduring Servant, remember Jesus Christ. That's right where it starts. What is the primary meditation of the heart for the enduring ministry? And the enduring minister, whether he be a shepherd like Timothy, whether he be a sheep who is, is equipped for ministry within the body, whatever the case, the enduring and central meditation of the heart is Jesus Christ and the truths that are presented about Jesus Christ in our scriptures. Stepping onto a soapbox, it seems that it keeps coming up the idea that people are Jesus people, and therefore they are untouchable as we bring discernment to bear on whether what it is they write or what they say or what they sing or whatever the case. It's become so prevalent that anybody who names the name of Jesus, just those letters is somehow wiped off of Uh, any criticism, any scrutiny, and is put into the safety zone of the professing church. What we find in verses 8 through 13 is that it is not just any Jesus will do, it is the Jesus as revealed in the Word of God. So, the question is, if you profess faith in Jesus, and you profess to be a follower of Jesus, who is your Jesus? And how did you come to know Him? That's the meditation that we find driving the enduring ministry in verses 8 through 13. So that's the near context. That stacks us up for verse 14 all the way down through verse 19. And that's what we're going to begin our study tonight in these verses 14 through 19. Now Paul moves from word pictures to meditations. And now he comes finally in verse 14 to action steps for enduring ministry. It's almost like we're coming to the end of the business meeting and he says, okay, now I want these things to be accomplished. These are the action steps. Write these down. Get these in your notebook because these things need to happen and they need to keep happening on a consistent basis for the goal of an enduring ministry. Okay? Does that make sense? That's where we are. And we're going to find a number of imperatives here in this portion of Scripture. Really, it takes us all the way through the end of the chapter. Paul's going to give command after command after command. It's a grocery list of actions that need to be taken for the sake of enduring faithful in ministry. Now, this evening, you can all sigh a sigh of relief because we are not going to cover all of them. I, wisdom won the better part of my thinking this week, and we're only going to look at the first two action steps. And praise the Lord for all of us who want to, at some point this evening, have a bite to eat or go to sleep at a reasonable hour. Okay? So the first two, and these are pretty simple, and I think they're very straightforward and extremely familiar. So they, they bring to us that danger, again, of being so familiar that we don't grasp the weight of what is being said. Right? Here are two action steps for enduring ministry, verses 14 and 15. Number one. The enduring minister or an enduring ministry must warn about words. Must warn about words, and we'll find that in verse 14. The enduring minister or an enduring ministry must warn about words. And number two, the second action that must be the part of the enduring ministry, the enduring minister must work with the word. Okay, Paul is all wrapped up in words in these first several verses and he's concerned that the enduring ministry set itself as an action, as a course of action to warn about words and then to work hard with the word and we'll see that in verse 15. Now, that was all introduction, we now get to come to these verses. Let me read them for us and I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter just to... Give us the big picture and then we'll begin our study of verse 14 and 15. Remind them, Timothy, remind them of these things, verse 14 says, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart That is the word of the Lord, and that will make up the next several weeks of our study as we look at this action list for enduring ministry. Action number one, the enduring ministry or enduring minister must warn about words. Verse 14 says, remind them of these things. Remind them is the imperative verb. It's a command for action on Timothy's part. He is to give himself as the shepherd. As the overseer of this flock, as an elder in this flock, he is to give himself to reminding the people of a set of words, a set of information. Remind them of these things. Timothy, in the best case scenario, is to be a pest for God's people. He's to be reminding over and over and over again. And I know that you're sitting there, and you're thinking, surely I don't need any reminders. But we all know the truth. You need many reminders. You need reminders to help remind you of what needs to be reminded. I do. You do. We enjoy the benefits of reminders on a continual basis. My outlook on my computer reminds me with this bell thing that comes up and tells me that I have two weeks to get something done. No kidding. I said it for two weeks. Two weeks out, then I can, from that point, I can snooze for a half a day. That's how long I can snooze. So I snooze for half a day right up until the end, and then it starts warning me by the minute of when this event is about to happen. Warning, you need to preach on Sunday. Warning, warning, warning. Reminder, my alarm clock is a painful reminder. It tells me that there actually is something to do today and that you really do need to stop what you're doing now which is snuggled down deep in the sheets and enjoying the warmth of your bed. And you need to get up, get a shower, and get ready because there's something to do. And my snooze button doesn't let me off the hook. It only reminds me again and again and again. And my poor wife says, either get up or turn it off. Do something. Please. The doctor's office calls us when we have an appointment. The dentist calls you and says, oh, by the way, so-and-so, you have an appointment tomorrow at 8. We say, thank you for the reminder. Thank you. We need reminders. God has blessed us men with wives. We need reminders. See, nobody is a better reminder than my wife. Babe, don't forget about this. And she knows that all too often, whatever my response is, I've already forgotten about whatever it is that she said, don't forget about this. We're blessed by reminders, and we are blessed in the ministry of the Word of God with God's truth bringing back to mind the very realities that we have based our faith and our hope and our, our confidence for eternity on. And Timothy here is called upon by the Apostle Paul to remind the people. That's the imperative. And what are the these things that he is to remind the people of? That points us back. It points us back to verses 11 through 13 to the trustworthy saying, If we've died with Christ, we'll live with Christ. If we endure, we'll reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. And if we are faithless, don't worry, He can never become faithless. He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. These things point back in the immediate context to verses 11-13, through but they point further back in the context to all that Paul has written to Timothy in this letter. Be a sounding board for the reminders, Timothy, Set before the people a careful reminder and help them understand the necessity of thinking rightly about these things, which is the truths that we have just studied in verses 11 through 13 several weeks ago. Now, not only does he say, remind them of these things, but he goes on and says, and charge them. And this reminder comes with a continual warning to the flock. So it's not just... A friendly reminder. It's not a wake up call in the morning to say uh, your flight's going to leave at this particular time. This is a reminder that comes with sobriety because it comes with a warning, with a charge. It's serious. Timothy is to remind the people of the realities about Christ and about the truth, but he is to do it with an eye to charging them specifically to avoid certain activities. Now there's a little note here that I think I should make for your benefit just because it helps you in your Bible study. But the word charge is not another imperative verb. And here we go into English class. This is always painful. But it's actually a participle. And all that means is it helps describe what Paul intends with the word remind. If he says remind, now subsequent to that, secondarily he says charging them. It flows from that verb. It's not a second verb, and our translation really does us a disservice by putting and charge. Or if you have the NIV, you've got a period and a whole new sentence, when in fact that's not at all what the case is here. And for those of you who need the encouragement, the beloved and old King James Version and the new King James Version gets it right, don't they, Carol? Yes, charging. Yes, they do. They get that participle right and they help us understand that what Paul is saying is remind them and specifically here's what that reminder needs to include. Charging them before God. That's the key component to this reminder about the truth. If they are reminded about the truth, they need to be negatively charged or negatively confronted in the presence of God himself. Charge them with God's presence on the table. Okay, Timothy? Timothy? This is a bolstering of Timothy's courage and confidence. He's to bring a reminder to the people. He's to do it with a charge included, which is a difficult thing to do. And he's doing it with God's presence right there with him. That should bring confidence and hope and courage to his instruction of God's people. This charge is extremely specific in its content we find in the second part of this verse exactly what he's to charge them before God. He's to charge them not to quarrel about words. Not to quarrel about words. And that's kind of a weird thing. I I think if we showed up in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, we'd be a little confused about what's going on here. First of all, if we stay isolated and we don't look at the context of what's going on in these letters to Timothy, we're kind of confused because of what verse 15 says. Right? I mean, we're to not quarrel and discuss and argue about words, but we're to be as careful and precise as possible about our handling of the word. So, which is it? Do we argue and think through and work through and process what the word means in its minute details, or not? But with the context of these letters, excuse me, of these letters to Timothy, we gain a great insight into what Paul's talking about, and you already know, because you know what's going on in Ephesus. You'll remember back in 1 Timothy exactly what the issues are that poor young Timothy is dealing with there in the church. You remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 3, Paul says, I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In verse 6 he says certain persons by swerving from these realities of a charge that's from love and a pure heart and a good conscience and s- sincere faith have wandered away into vain discussions. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He goes on, if we go to the end of First Timothy chapter 6, He describes these individuals who are causing so much trouble in Ephesus. And you'll notice in verse 3 of chapter 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The warring over words is a very specific problem here in the church at Ephesus, and it was the telltale sign of the false teachers who were there. They had convinced some of God's people that there was a secret meaning. There was an underlying principle that must be known in the genealogies and in looking at the mysterious language of specific words. And if they would come to that deeper understanding, they would know they would know true blessing from God. That quarreling, that warring about words, and that's a, that's a word that Paul made up. I love when Paul does that. He just slaps a couple of words together. And makes his own word. And he does that right here. He does it in 6.3 when he talks about them uh, being warriors for words. And he does it again here as a verb. Talking about this prevalent problem that must be avoided at the church at Ephesus. The word warring. The battling over the minutia for the sake of an argument. This was the telltale sign of the false teacher. Now why was this a big deal for Paul and for Timothy, why was this such a concern? But as I was thinking about this, I was asking myself, what is the big deal with people who bicker over words and special meanings from genealogies? I mean really, aren't these just painless problems in the church? Aren't these just normal natural things that go on? Aren't these just a group of odd but harmless people that exist within the church? I mean really what's the big deal? I mean, so they get together at Starbucks every week. Oh, man, they go back over the genealogies again, looking for secret meanings. But, hey, they appreciate Christ. They are still a part of the church. What's the big deal? Well, Paul tells us what the big deal is at the conclusion of verse 14. Why is he so worked up that Timothy remind them of the truth, and in reminding them, be charging them to avoid this warring over words? Well, because this quarreling and warring about words does no good. And that is a strong, strong statement. There is nothing good that comes from this practice of quarreling over words. This is false teaching. And in chapter 6, we saw such a gruesome description of what was going on. It was an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels. It produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people. This was the wedge that was breaking apart the church at Ephesus. And Paul is desperately concerned that Timothy not allow this false teaching and the movement that is rising up within the church to hinder him in an enduring ministry. Therefore, he needs to warn God's people about this quarreling over words. Not only does it produce nothing that is good, but also we see secondly in verse 14, the last little phrase, but only ruins the hearers. And if the first statement wasn't good enough for us to avoid it, we now understand how detrimental this quarreling over words had become. It ruins the hearers. Destruction is the reward for those who walk down the arrogant path of secret messages. And word wars. It destroys. It's destruction. That's the wake that is left. For those who would fall into this trap. And folks this has not stopped. Okay, This is still very real. Even in right now. Evangelicalism. There are still those who are producing books. At an alarming rate. That are talking about secret ways to see scripture. Secret codes to help. Unfold scripture. Myths use of genealogies, all of these things still go on. And we are called, if we are to be enduring and faithful in ministry, and if we are to stand shamelessly for the truth, we need to remind ourselves of what is true and remind others as shepherds. We need to remind the people of God of those things that are true, all the while charging them to avoid such pitfalls. That's the first action step that is outlined for young Timothy. The enduring minister is a reminder. He's a reminder for God's people. He's something of a sanctified pest. He keeps saying the same thing over and over again. Not only is he a reminder, but secondly, he's a worker. The enduring minister must work with the word. And now we've turned from endless myths and genealogies to the perfect and once for all delivered word from our God. The scriptures. Verse 15. Second imperative. The first one was remind them. The second one now is do your best. Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best, Timothy. While word wars are to be dealt with harshly within the church, the word is to be handled with the utmost care. And the enduring minister of the gospel and the enduring ministry of the gospel will be a ministry where error is highlighted and warned, where God's people are reminded of the truth and where the Word of God is taken seriously. And precision is the mark of faithfulness here in verse 15. Do your best. Press yourself, Timothy, to continual growth and development The word carries the idea of persistent zeal, persistent energy for what is to follow. Do your best for what reason? To present yourself, to lay yourself before the judge for his examination. Who is the worker here in verse 15? What's the description of this minister as worker He's to present himself as an approved worker, tested and tried, enduring in ministry. Notice in verse 15, the description is as one approved. The word approved is a great word. It's it's got a lot of word pictures wrapped up into it. But it is the idea of testing something to see if in fact it is genuine. There were all kinds of ways in New Testament times to cover up or to scam someone with a piece of pottery, a piece of jewelry, any number of things, any weights or scales could be be tweaked so that they would benefit the vendor. And this hasn't changed. If you've ever been to another country and they saw that you were from America and you had American dollars, which now means zero, but you had American dollars and they came to you and tried to sell you something There are ways that they can scam you into buying something that is not, in fact, what you think it is. The only way for it to be approved is for you to test it to see if, in fact, it's actually what it claims to be. Is this actually an ancient piece of jewelry? Or is it, when I flip it over and look inside, does it say made in China? Okay. Have I approved it? Is it real? Well, this is the description of the faithful, enduring minister of the gospel. He is one approved. He is tested. He is tried. And he has been found to be the real deal. That's the worker. That's his description. The amazing thing about this approval, this testing, is not the worker. The amazing part about this is the foreman on the job who actually tests the worker. Who is it? That's setting up the test. Who's setting the trial. And who is proclaiming this worker to be approved. Folks. It's not the congregation. It's not the local opinion of the ministry. Or of the minister. It's God himself. It's God himself. He's the one who tests. Who tries. And who declares approved. Or not approved. The minister of the gospel, the faithful, enduring minister of the gospel, centers his life around the audience of one. His judge, his foreman, his one who will do the six-month checkup, his one who will examine his work to see if he's producing the kind of craftsmanship that he's been called to and gifted for, is none other than the King of kings, the God of heaven. God himself is the audience for the minister of the gospel. It is God who will pronounce failure or success, and the standard will be His standard, not a human standard. So that's the worker. He's an approved individual who has given himself to his labors, and the foreman on this job or the one approving the judge is God Himself. Now what is the job? What's the description of the job in verse 15? The enduring minister must work with the Word. What does that look like? says he's not to be ashamed because he's rightly handling the word of truth. Maybe you have a little note in your Bible. I don't have one in this particular Bible, but maybe you have a little note that talks about that verb of rightly handling. The idea there is to cut it straight. It's the idea of precision, of measurements, of cutting something flush so that it works exactly the way it's supposed to, of taking God's truth and handling it with such a precise manner as to not at all be off base with our handling. To cut it exactly as it's to be cut. To understand it exactly as it's to be understood. To teach it exactly as it's written. So that God's people benefit from this work. The word of truth. Handling the word of truth. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus prayed for us. He prayed to the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. And then he said, your word is truth. It is the word of God, it is the scriptures that become the all-encompassing passion of the enduring minister. And it is the central priority of the enduring ministry as well. Rightly handling the word of truth. James 1 tells us that the word of truth is what brought life to us. Ephesians 1 says, Reiterates the same truth as does Colossians one five. Cutting straight the Word of God, accurate, authentic, and appropriate in its delivery to God's people is the goal of faithful, enduring ministry. John MacArthur says the careful exegete, an expositor of God's word, words of truth must be meticulous in the way he interprets and pieces together the many individual truths found in the scriptures. The first and most important principle is that of basing doctrine and standards of living on Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. A key watchword for the Protestant Reformation. That's what we are, folks. We are a child of the Protestant Reformation. We are committed to Sola Scriptura. The Word is sufficient. Therefore, our ministry must be committed as its priority to rightly handling this Word. And your ministers must be committed and must be held to the standard of rightly handling this word. That should be your expectation. And it should be your expectation in the Ephesians 4 picture of equipping you for the work of ministry that your shepherds faithfully teach you how to rightly handle the word of God so that you might use it in your ministry to the body of Christ with your gifts given by the Spirit. And what's the benefit that comes from this? In the middle there, verse verse 15, we see the benefit. This worker who has no need to be ashamed. There's no shame before the judge when the job has been faithfully carried out. And folks, this is the joy. This is the joy of true ministry success. A shameless devotion to the Word of God results in a shameless examination before the God of the Word. It's a worker who is approved and has no need to be ashamed because he has committed himself to rightly handling the word of truth. That is the enduring minister in a nutshell. He reminds, he confronts, and he gives himself to presenting before his judge. A worker approved, rightly handling the word. John MacArthur goes on to say, The supreme purpose of the diligent and selfless teacher is to please God, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, Paul asks Galatian believers, or am I the servant of Christ? Every Christian teacher and preacher should be able to say, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. His greatest desire is to hear his master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew twenty five, twenty one. Such a teacher or preacher is a workman who does not need to be ashamed. And such a ministry that has committed itself both from its shepherds to its sheep to this approach and this priority of reminding of the truth while charging to avoid error and giving ourselves to do our best to present ourselves before God will be the enduring ministry. It will be the successful ministry in the eyes of God of him with whom we have to do. The enduring ministry of the gospel will rest and does rest squarely upon a proper understanding of the minister, a proper meditation of the minister's heart, and a commitment to the proper priorities in the minister's task. These are the first two actions that are on this list of imperatives from Paul. And Timothy, no doubt, is grasping the weight of these, and I trust that we are grasping them tonight and that I'm grasping them as I study them and as we walk through them together so that God may be pleased by the faithful pursuit of this standard in our church, in Grace Church, that shepherds at Grace Church would be committed to these actions as their priority, that the sheep at Grace Church would be being equipped with these standards before them as ministry, So that God may be pleased, that He may grant success in His eyes for the glory of His name. We've been saved. We glory in our salvation. It will come to its fullness before our Christ in our glorification. We are being sanctified. God is working in us through trials, through His Word. His Spirit is working in us, strengthening us, shaping and molding us into the image of Christ. And we have the privilege, as those who have been saved and are being sanctified, to join with others in His body, to use our gifts from the Spirit to build up that body and to minister in that body. And if we are to endure in the face of trial, in the face of blessing, if we are to endure, whether it is hard or it is easy, if we are to endure and be successful in His eyes, we will have to set our course Based upon the word pictures that he has presented to us, based upon the meditation that he has outlined for us in verses 8 through 13, and based upon the action priorities that we find in these verses, we must set ourselves with the word as our standard. Okay? Application. Give yourself to the word that you might be rightly handling its truth. Expect and pray for. And demand the right handling of the truth from those who provide your shepherding. We're brand new. We're not a year old yet. We're just learning to walk as a church. And we need to set our standard. We need to set our expectations according to the perfect standard of our God. Right? He's provided the grace at the cross. He's done all that we need for us to live in obedience to him and to see him stamp over Grace Church of the Valley, no matter how long we're here, no matter how long he tarries, to stamp successful, because we've been faithful, to place ourselves squarely into the priorities that he's outlined for.